pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this, this evening and ask that you would take each part of this service. Help us as we study your word, that you would encourage us in it. Give us another look at you, our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Your Bibles, if you would, let's go to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, and let's just read through the entire chapter. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat upon the throne, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders and the numbers of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb, forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. So we've just read chapter four. Now it was two weeks ago uh, we were together and we did chapter uh, four. We just read chapter five, if I said that wrong. And the thing that we need to remember is chapters four and five in the book of Revelation are connected. Just like chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches, chapters 4 and 5 are this glimpse. And if we go back to chapter 4, uh, we hear the voice calling, Come up hither, 
And, of course, most commentators are rather perplexed as to what is coming up, where, and where thither is. But we have a door opened in heaven. We have the voice as a trumpet calling, come up hither. I just simply see an event that we call the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the redeeming or the removing of the church. The church, if we call it the church age, if we would like to, is drawn to a close. The church is now brought up into heaven. It is removed from this earth. And by the way, what would happen, let's just say, what would happen if the Antichrist, the beast as the Bible calls him, were to be revealed today? Right now, every Bible-believing Christian would be opening their Bible and pointing a finger and saying, he's the imposter. But Thessalonians tells us that everyone that is on this earth, except for those that will get saved, they are going to believe the majority of people on this earth are going to unite in one religion and one political system would not happen if the church were still here. And so the church is going to be pulled out. And we see this throne set in heaven. And verse 4, if you... I I hate to use this terminology because I really despise Broadway and everything that it's about. But... It's like the stage is being set. And John is watching as this throne is set. As God himself sits down upon that throne, the four beasts are there surrounding the throne. Around the four beasts are the 24 elders. All of this is set upon a sea of glass. The, uh, the colors and the, and the glowing beauty of God is there with this rainbow likened to an emerald around the throne. Wherever God is, there's going to be praise of God. And we see that going on at the end of chapter 4. And the note that I have in here is we need to remember here, as we get caught up, as we are actually able to look into heaven is what we are doing here in chapters 4 and 5. Don't forget, this book is not the revelation of God about heaven. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. This is not so we can know what heaven is going to be like. This is still about Jesus The picture, the stage is set. The action is not going to happen until we get into chapter 5. And you have to remember here that the chapter and verse divisions in your Bible were were set up in the Middle Ages. They were just simply done so that it would make us easier to find things. And how complicated would it be if your Bible was just one big book? Even the book of Revelation, the individual books, and say, leaf through your Bibles until you get to the point where it says, and, and I saw in the right hand of him 
uh, it would be very difficult for us to start and stop. But don't allow the chapters to divide up the action and the story here. It's not stopping in the end of chapter 4 and starting again in chapter 5. It's one continuous thing. The stage has now been set. The action that God is revealing about His Son, Jesus Christ, that He has given to Jesus, that Jesus is now giving to John, things are about to start happening. And it happens as John is looking at the throne. He contemplates what he is seeing. He is hearing the praise. He is watching the elders cast their crowns at the feet of Him that sitteth upon the throne. And he sees in the right hand of him that sits on the throne a book. Now, he's able to tell a few things about this book. Number one, it is full. The book is written within, and the book is written on the back side. Now, um, when you see the word book, and this is just one of the tools that the Bible uh, how shall we call them? Bible despisers love to use. See, well, your old King James Bible uses the word book. No one had books in the first century. They were all scrolls. Well, number one, that's not true. The Egyptians had been taking sheets of papyrus and binding them together for a long time. Uh, that's... But let me ask you... Can we just take the base definition of the word book? What is it? It is a long document. A letter is usually one or two pages, maybe five or six. Uh, my, some of my old professors used to accuse me of turning in a term paper and said, this is not a term paper, this is a book. Keep it short. I have to read a hundred of these, you know. And um, so we had to uh, be careful about that. But my term papers weren't classified as books. They just, uh, the professor didn't want to read all that stuff. Uh, but the simple truth of the matter is here. This, uh, as you read through your Bible, you'll find the word book is used to describe both scrolls and stacks of sheets of paper put together. It is a general term that refers to any document that is longer than just an essay or a page or two. In fact, let's go to the book Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel will set us straight on this thing just a little bit. He's going to describe something here in Ezekiel chapter 2. And again, this is just a note of allowing the Bible to help us understand the Bible and not allowing people to criticize our Bible just because they think that the word scroll ought to be there rather than book. In verse 9, it says, When I looked, behold, an hand was sent unto me, and lo, what's those next phrase? A roll of a book was therein. Now, as Ezekiel is getting revelation from God, this hand appears, and in the hand is the roll of a book. So, books come both flat like this, 
and rolled up like a scroll as the Bible defines it. Now look how it's described here in verse 10. And he spread it before me and it was written within and without. And there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Now, this book that is in the right hand of him that sits upon the throne, how many of you have already read through the book of Revelation at least once or twice or been through the book and know what happens when those seals start to begin to be released? I mean, you read what Ezekiel talks about here, lamentations and mourning. In fact, uh, we have the, um, the seal judgments and then we have the trumpets and then we have the vial judgments and the last three of the vial judgments are called the three great woes. And all of these things are going to begin to happen and it's all connected to this book that is in the hand of him that sits upon the throne. And it is full. Not only is it written on one side as traditionally, it's written on the other side. I mean, this is a double-sided document. There was so much to put in there. Now, it's interesting what happens in Ezekiel. Read with me. If you're still in Ezekiel, look at chapter 3 and verse 1. And he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll and go speak to the house of Israel. Now, if you want a great class on sermon preparation, right here it is. You've got to get God's word in you so that it assimilates into your person before you take it to the people you're preaching it to. That's sermon preparation. Now, there's an awful lot of other work that needs to go into it, but, I mean, talk about just a summary. One verse here. This is what God says, I want you to do with my word, Ezekiel. I want you to eat it. I want you to take it in. And, and Jesus picks up on this same terminology, uh, I am the what? Bread of life. Jesus said, he that eateth of me, John chapter 6, and boy, you know, all of the strange people get out and say, yeah, we need to actually partake of the actual flesh of Jesus Christ. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about doing what Ezekiel did in Ezekiel chapter 3, doing what you and I should do each and every day is partake of the Word of God. Amen? You cannot just take the words of God and let them sit on the surface of your conscience. They're meant to be assimilated just as you do your daily food. That's why Jesus said, man shall not live by what? Bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This is what the Bible is talking about. We're making some connections here, and I hope you don't mind that we, we do this because it is important to see what happens to this book is all of these commands in the Scripture to meditate upon the Word of God, 
You know, it's not sitting cross-legged and going mm, until the light turns on and you see flashing lights or feel wonderful things. It is assimilating is the medical term. When you eat food, it goes into your body and it goes through a digestive process where it is broken down into small enough parts that your body is able to absorb and to benefit from the energy that is contained in that food. How many of you like just a little uh, caffeine or sugar or both? Pick me up in the middle of the afternoon. Just, just a little coffee and something sweet when I get hit that tired spot. And, and it makes a big difference in the day now, doesn't it? Now, if you just eat something super sweet, what happens? You crash. Uh, A lot of people do that spiritually now, don't they? Because they're only getting the sweet things out of the Word of God. They're not getting the the meat and the things that build them and give them that long-term energy and we, again, uh, I hope you don't mind me doing this. We, we've just got to. You go back to Psalm 119. What did David rejoice in? He said, thy judgments, thy commandments. How many Christians have I heard over the years saying, uh, well, you know, uh, the Bible is just a bunch of do's and don'ts and these commandments. I, I like the Psalms. It just makes me feel better. Well, well wait a minute. It's those judgments where I really get help. It's those commandments that will keep me when all of the world is pulling me away from my Lord. It is knowing what the difference between right and wrong is. One of the greatest comforts people accuse us of preaching on hell as though we enjoy it. If you've ever met any Jehovah's Witnesses, that's one of their little phrases they have used over the years. It's tired and worn out, and it's just a big lie. We don't, I don't know of any preacher that enjoys preaching on hell that really loves the God of the Bible. But let me tell you something. God created hell for those people that reject his word. Aren't you glad God saved you from it? Aren't you glad his goodness redeemed you from the pit? And don't you think that when you get depressed or worn out or just a little overwhelmed by the word, the world in which we live, that just a few thoughts on the fact that God has redeemed my soul from that great judgment would not be a comfort to your soul? Amen? You see, this book is full of lamentations and woe 
It is the sealed up, pent up judgment of Almighty God. Jesus told the disciples as he was describing this time period that we call the tribulation, this seven-year period that is about to begin. As it is described in Revelation chapter 6 and following, that if those days were not shortened, no flesh survived. He told Ezekiel to eat this roll. Look in in verse 2. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then I did eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Now what was this book full of? Lamentations. And mourning and woe. That doesn't sound like pleasant eating to me. But let me tell you something. God's word is always. Now we'll find out that uh, in the book of Revelation as we go through, there'll be another book to be eaten and it'll be sweet as honey. But as soon as it gets past his mouth, it makes him bitter in his bowels and upsets his system because it's going to be all about God's judgment. And he's telling Ezekiel here, you've got to get the word in you before you can take it to Israel. Now, that's not the main thought that is right here. That's just a little aside that we can look at. The thought that is here in the book of Revelation as we get back to our picture, remember, chapter 4 is the setting of the stage. We have the worship of God, he that sitteth upon the throne, going on continually. We are reminded that the Lord is worthy to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now we have a book in the right hand of him that sits on the throne. This book is written on within, without. And it is sealed with seven seals. Now, commentators, boy, they just got to go somewhere to find something. How many of you knew that Augustus Caesar's will had seven seals on it? How many of you care? Good. No hands went up. Well, half of one. Uh, There is no correlation between the seven seals in the book of Revelation and what Augustus Caesar did with his last will and whatever you would want to call it. We, we look in the Bible and we, we see certain things about numbers. When we see seven, we've already been introduced to the seven lamps, which are the seven spirits of God. That doesn't mean there are seven individual Holy Spirits of God running out through the earth. What he's trying to do is, is help us understand the greatness and the omnipresence, the completeness 
How many days in a week? Seven. It's an idea of completeness, of totality. That's just the number that is used in the Bible to when it talks about that. And as we look through here, we have this book sealed with seven seals. Now, you can go through your Bible, and, and I didn't put the reference here to the book of Daniel. But in the book of Daniel, in the last chapter, I believe, as God is telling Daniel these things that are going to happen in the end times, he said, I want you to seal the book until the end of days. And if you want something that's really amazing, find a commentary on the book of Revelation that's 150 years old. You will read some of the most bizarre things that you could ever imagine finding in print. And if you go back further than that, then you can find some church fathers, most of which were unsaved men, and so uh, you can really enter uh, a medieval version of the Twilight Zone, I guess is what you would call it, uh, and, and get some amazingly strange ideas about the Word of God. Now, as we read the book of Revelation today, and we see some of these things, a mountain of burning fire falling on the uh, and, and, and polluting one-third of the world's fresh water. How many of you are thinking of the mushroom cloud of an atomic explosion and the fallout and all of those things? When it talks about the two witnesses' dead bodies lying three days in the streets of Jerusalem and all of the world beholding them, seeing their dead bodies lying in the street. How many of you are thinking of the Internet? I mean, I pull out my cell phone and punch up a button and I, I got what's going on anywhere in the world at any moment in time. We can see certain things and understand some of the things in the book of Revelation that had no way of having a reality in a literal interpretation all of a sudden start making sense. Are you still with me on all this? Just simply because of what we know in our technology today in the year 1500... What would you think about without television, without internet, without satellite links, without TV cameras? How would the whole world see two dead men lying in the city of Jerusalem if they're only going to be there for three days? I mean, here in the United States, when, when our country was formed, the president wasn't sworn in until the middle of March. Why? Because the elections were held in November and the electoral uh, college would meet a month to eight weeks later and cast their votes. But it took time for the president to travel from wherever he was to the place where he would be inaugurated and serve as president. It took time to get those things done. Now 
we do things instantaneous. It's a little different, and we've got to be careful as we read our Bible. And you've heard me uh, uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek talking about the... uh, the locusts coming out of the pit being Apache attack helicopters. I read that somewhere and stuff like that. God doesn't need those things to fulfill his word. But we can easily imagine a million people dying in a second. It's not hard to figure out. The things that are described in the book of Revelation are real events. And so, the theme, the center of the stage, is he who sits upon the throne is holding a book. And now the claim, the call is given. A strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, how did John know he was a strong angel? Well, you get this little five foot three guy weighing 110 pounds soaking wet, and he opens his mouth. Hi, how are you? Though I did have a college professor who was described just as I did before. And one day the microphone stopped working in the classroom. There's about 250 students in there. And he just bats the thing out of the way and says, Who needs a microphone? And we're sitting there going, Oh, something got into Dr. Woodworth today. But the idea of being able to proclaim this loud voice, as we will read, which searches earth and heaven and the depths of the ocean and every part of the living universe, I'd say that'd have to be a pretty big dude to come up with a voice that big, wouldn't you? And there'd have to be just a little bit of strength behind that voice to push it out. And I'm not going to try to imitate that because I do not have a super strong voice. It just doesn't work that way. It never has. But this mighty angel proclaims with a loud voice and asks the question in verse 2, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? Who is able to take that book out of the right hand of him that sits upon the throne? And so we ask the question, what does it mean here to be worthy? Well, first, he's got to be able to approach the very throne of Almighty God. Now, let me ask you a question. If God didn't want to give up that book, who was going to take it out of his hand? Nobody? Nothing. And so this idea of worthiness is who has God esteemed worthy to take this book? 
Now, again, what is going on in heaven? We finished chapter 4, the throne is set, and they are worshiping him that sits on the throne. As they are worshiping him that sits on the throne, and I mean the, the entire being of John, which is now spiritual, no longer physical, that he could behold these things and not be destroyed, he is looking and John misses the whole thing. You see, God is setting up another view, another chance to look at Jesus Christ And as the call goes out, there is silence in all the universe as they are looking for one whom God that sits upon the throne will hand the book to. And no one can be found. Now, why why is this happening? Well, because God is setting the stage for the worship of the Son. And John is just so overwhelmed when they say, verse 3, No man was, and no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereupon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. He said, I just began weeping. The uh, emotions just were too much for me. And, and I just broke down and started weeping. And one of the elders is gone. Hey, John, knock it off. Weep not. That's not what this is about. We are trying to set the stage to worship Christ. Because this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the ways we worship Christ is by elevating him above all mankind. There are the writings of no man, the thoughts of no man or group of men. The deeds of no man or group of men. The Buddhist once I was reading a book. And they claim that the Buddhists were willing to recognize Jesus as an initiate of the mysteries of the universe to the second degree. But, of course, Buddha was of the eighth. Well, that's blasphemy, my friend. Sung Young Moon says, well, I came to fix the things that Jesus failed at doing. I remember one of his little twerp followers was actually in this building. And I said, that is blasphemy. He said, but Chung Young Moon didn't agree to do it until Jesus asked him the third time. I said, get out of here. You're not going to talk about my Jesus that way. And by the way, I was that loud without the microphone when I told him to get out of here. Because what is happening is The tension is building because we are going to be shown no angel, not one of these four mighty beasts, the cherubim, the seraphim that surround the throne. No one but God himself, God the Son, is worthy to take that book. But God the Son is a little different because he is a man. 
our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is both. You say, how does that work? I don't know. I just believe it. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Amen? And now, John said, and we beheld His glory. We got to see His glory while He was here on earth. But John is just about to hit the point of being totally overwhelmed as he sees His glory in heaven as the Lamb that had been slain. And so John wept much in verse 4. Because no one was found to look upon the book. Verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Hey, we know what's happening. Behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now, these two titles, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is talking about the king. The one that has the power to rule and the power of dominion. The root of David, the promised seed that would rule the nations with a rod of iron. He says, he is the one that has prevailed. That's past tense. It is finished. Amen. He has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the world. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him, that sat upon the throne. Now, you'll notice it says he came and took the book. But he did not walk from the outside through the circle of saints uh, or elders there and into through the circle of the beast and finally into the presence of God where God handed him the... Uh, the book, it says that there appeared in the midst of the throne. We have the throne. And, and remember, this is the throne that God sits on. It wouldn't fit in this building. It wouldn't fit in your imagination. This is a big place. We're going to find out how, uh, just to get a little idea of how big it is in just a few moments... But he appears. He is there in the midst of the throne. Was he there all along? And John just couldn't see him? Possibly. But the search was made. God the Father brings God the Son on the scene. And when people make the statement that Jesus was never worshipped as God in their Bible, take them here to Revelation 4 and 5. And show them this passage. Because God the Father is giving worship to the Son. 
Now, the only way God the Father can do that is if Jesus is not his equal. Jesus is God. God the Father is God. You can't explain it in words that we would understand. But that's why the Lamb appears in the midst of the throne, because he is God. And he is going to be worshipped as God and he has the right as he reaches out and takes that book and it describes him as a lamb that had been slain. Now, I don't know how you would describe a lamb as it had been slain standing in the midst of the throne. I mean, I've seen lambs that are slain. Uh, One of my first visits to Astoria back in 1990 Uh, I think we were walking down 30th Avenue here and they had like two or three lambs just hanging fur on, heads on, the whole nine yards. Uh, That lamb had been slain. There was no question about it. Uh, The fur was all red in the belly. And uh, the eyes were looking like they were dead and there's a little tongue hanging out. I mean, it was pretty gross. But praise God, it wasn't walking around. Amen? But this lamb bore the marks of violence. Jesus, when he resurrected, what did he tell Thomas? He says, put your fingers in the nail prints. He said, here, thrust your hand into my side where the spear went through me. And be not faithless, but believing. One preacher years ago, I have no idea who uh, originated this quote, but it said, the only thing made in heaven with the hands of man are the scars in his hands. And of course, his feet were scarred and his side was scarred. This is why the lamb appeared as as if he had been slain. He had seven horns, he had seven eyes. Now that gets a little strange, but as we try to picture this thing, and and I've seen artists try to draw this, and it just gets beyond weird. Uh, And as we've said, it says that these seven eyes and these seven horns are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. This is the fullness of the omnipresence of God. Horns, you read through the Bible, the place where the word horn is used more than any other place is when it's talking about the horns of the altar of incense and the horns of the brazen altar. That is the most used, uh, as the word horns is used, it is used in that terminology more than any other way in the scripture. Many more times. Because the blood was to be sprinkled on the horns. The idea of horns is power. It's dominion. It talks about the horn uh, in the book of of, uh, uh, Daniel, the the one horn uh, of the great goat that pushed back and forth, talking about Alexander the Great and his dominion. It was broken and four horns or four kingdoms came up in its place. Here are seven horns the completeness and fullness of his power, 
seven eyes, the completeness and the fullness of God's knowledge, of his understanding, of his perception of what is really and truly happening. As this lamb appears and takes the book out, that's when the worship begins. And we're out of time. But let's just touch on this one thing. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Now these twenty-four elders that are gathered around the throne, and there's much, much uh, uh, conjecture about who they are, in fact, one commentary I read, well, if the authorized text or the talking about the King James Bible is right, we know who the elders are. If it's not right, and he starts quoting some modern version revision and says, well, it doesn't, we don't know who they are, but listen, you don't need to doubt your Bible. These 24 elders, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's just that simple. And they are going to sing a song of the redeemed. Uh, Guess what? They were men who were redeemed. And there was none among them who was worthy to look, even look upon the book, except their redeemer, the lamb that had been slain. They had harps. How many of you have seen pictures of people in heaven strumming harps? Well, this is where it comes from, right here. Um, what if God saved your prayers and gave them to you to offer to him on this day? Some people would run out of odors very quickly because they didn't pray much. Or many of their prayers were not the kind of prayers that God would receive. Just an interesting thought. Something to take with you through the week. Prayer is a form of worship. And I dare say it's one of the least practiced of Christians. We are to worship him. In our song. When you come Sunday morning, ask God to prepare your heart to really sing. Tell you what, it makes a difference. Don't make Brother Franz work so hard. Come on, put a smile on your face. Come on, how many are you really singing? Hey, when we sing, we're singing to God. You're practicing for heaven. If your voice is a little tired, that's okay. You got the whole sermon to rest, and they're usually pretty long around here. So give it all you got, amen? Now, Lord willing, next Thursday night, we'll talk about the worship. But read over these chapters a couple times between now and next Thursday night. Look at the stage being set. And as the cry is given to search for him that is worthy to open the book, I just see John sitting there going, 
And one of the elders is going, you're messing the thing up. Shut up. Stop it. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah we're worshiping. It is God the Son who's already appeared to you and given you the, the command to write his revelation. He is revealed here in chapter 5 as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who has prevailed, the lamb as if it had been slain. And the only being in the entire universe worthy to take the book out of the hand of him that sits upon the throne. It's all about worship. And guess what? You don't need one set of drums to make it happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us as we investigate your word, that we would be careful. And Lord, that we would understand that you are worthy and that we would repeat your worthiness that others may hear. That we would sing your worthiness as if you were here personally to receive them, and yet, Lord, your word tells us that you are. We ask that you would work in our hearts and our lives, that we would prepare ourselves for worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Before we finish that prayer, just have the pianist play. If you need to slip out and spend a few minutes talking to the King of Kings, but encourage you to do